This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Christos Chalkos, welcome to Better Reading. Oh, Cheryl, it's an absolute pleasure. You always say you've got a crush on me, Ken. Mm. I just tell you it's mutual. And it feels, <laughs> it is one of the, you know, the hardest, you know, I feel quite fortunate about where I am with this pandemic, but I, I do miss face-to-face mm. communication with friends. So. Mm. Well, I've been telling everybody that I'm speaking with you today and I've been telling everybody what a crush I've had on you. And I know all the listeners know that because we talk about it quite a bit. But one of my friends said to me the other day, you know, you can't have a crush on him. And I was like, why not? And she said, because I think he's taken. I said, isn't that the point of a crush? <laughs> <laughs> But it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, I mean, exactly. <laughs> Don't you think? I mean, you I know, know, it's like having a crush on George Clooney. Sean I know. Is taken. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the beauty of a crush. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Now let me introduce you because there might be one or two. But I love Joanna Woodward, but I didn't stop me having a crush on Paul Newman for decades. <laughs> didn't you love both of them? I love both I of actually, them. They're still my, um, if I was to think of the ideal uh, couple to invite over, it would be those two. Um, Gorgeous. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, just they seem like wonderful human beings, a really co- the commitment to each other and fabulous artists, mm. you know, together. Mm. And the quietness I always felt. Yeah. You know, that, that, that aura as a couple had a quiet, you know, yeah. from what I read and saw. Now, Christos is the best-selling author, award-winning author of seven novels, including The Slap, Dead Europe, Barracuda and Damascus. The Slap and Barracuda were adapted into a television series. The Slap won Best Book in the 2009 Commonwealth Writers' Prize, was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin Award and longlisted for the Booker Prize. He has also published short stories, essays and a critical literary study on Patrick White. We're here to talk about his latest book, Seven and a Half. It's a stunning novel about finding joy and beauty in today's complicated, messy world. Christos also just won the prestigious Melbourne Prize for Literature. Yes, that was just a few weeks ago. Congratulations. It was. It was. It was. Uh, thank you for that introduction, Cheryl. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was nerve-wracking on the actual day because uh, I don't tell you. you, you yeah. You, you know. So. Um, and I tried to be very zen about it. I think all all of us who were nominated tried to do that. But then, as a you know, it had to be over Zoom. You, you, so uh, it was actually a thrilling surprise to mm. when the my name was announced. I think I can't. I'm a bit nervous, or uh, I can't. I don't know. I must have babbled on in the acceptance speech. So, <laughs> but I don't it was. Believe that. It was. It was lovely, and it was. Uh, it was great. Um, the lovely thing about it. I mean, you know, I, I do. Think sometimes the setting up artists for competition. There's, you know, I have problems with that. But the loveliest thing was uh, actually on Sunday, 
my mum's twin sister rang her from Athens uh, in tears. She was reading something from one of the local papers that had uh, an article about my winning the prize. And I thought, oh, well, it's worth it for that. I've made my, you get all that and my mum happy. (laughs) You deserve it. Hey, listen, yeah, a little bit on prizes. You know, I'm, People often um, ask me that, you know, knowing that I work in the book industry, how I feel about prizes. And, you know, I mean, I'm not a writer and I'm not an author, but my view is it's such a tough gig and you get so little reward that, you know, go with it. Because sometimes some authors, all they ever get, because you know you're not doing it for the money, so all they ever get is recognition. And that, I think, is valuable, really valuable. I don't know what you're absolutely right. I think it is about the recognition, particularly, you know, the and, and something like the Melbourne Prize mm. is a kind of it, it, there's something genuinely, genuinely um, humbling about that, um, the, that kind of statement of uh, here's a body of work and it means something to to this place. And I, I you know, I, I can be. I don't want to mock that. It was mm. a, it, it was a genuine thrill, and and that you're you're right. I've always thought, um, and why I have been judged on prizes. It's also a way um, because no, no one gets into writing for the money, you know. Mm. And there's a lot of great work that never gets the due it deserves, and the prizes are one way of doing that mm. and getting some attention to to our great literature or our great films or our great music, mm. whatever it may be. Mm, yeah, no, I agree. Hey, listen, I want to start with this. We're talking about seven and a half, and I want to talk about the body of work as well, but this is something that I just wanted to read out loud, and I, I very rarely do this in a podcast, but this really moved me. So these are your words, and it's in the first chapter of the book. I've come here to write a book. I don't know yet exactly what it will be. I do know this. I don't want it to be about politics. I don't want it to be about sexuality. I don't want it to be about race. I don't want it to be about gender, not history, nor morality, and not about the future. All of those matters, politics, sexuality, race, history, gender, morality, the future, all of them now bore me. One, that moved me to my core. But two, I thought, what, do I keep reading? Because they're all the things that are interesting to me. And I know you said you didn't want to talk about them, but that is exactly what the book is about. Yeah, exactly. There, there, there is a tease in that opening, and there's a tease in the whole setup of the of the novel because it's about a writer called Christos, mm. wondering what book he's going to write, and what this narrator does is he capitalizes all those things, and so what the narrator is really saying, I don't want to talk about the capital G gender, the capital R race, the capital S sexuality, the capital C class, the capital P politics. It's actually about something else and it's the lowercase. It's the way those things are part of the air we breathe, the world we, we live in. What bores me is the, is it boredom? I mean, and this, Cheryl, is you know, I'm, I'm going to keep the gap between the real Christos Cholkis and the Chris Cholkis in the novel separate, right? Because there is a separation. It's, mm. uh, uh, you know, for myself and I hopefully for the reader as well. I just felt the last few years that there was so much anger and resentment mm. and screaming at one another and it was that screaming that has bored me. It is the fact that there hasn't been this space for actual argument, debate and dialogue. And I wanted to I wanted to just talk about what 
or try and make a reader comprehend what those spaces might be, how there are other ways we can talk about those things. Having said that too, also that I did want to talk about beauty. I did want to talk about joy uh, because when I look back, when I think back to my own experience as a reader, yes, I, I fell in love with those books that made me shudder and think about the world. But it was some of the most beautiful moments in something like Carson McCullough's The Heart is the Lonely Hunter, which is one of the first books I ever responded to deeply. Uh, the simple moments, when she's mm. describing how a man takes off his jacket mm. after work, mm. uh, what it's like for a 14-year-old girl in the deep south of the United States, which is, I've, I've said this before, which is a world away from suburban Melbourne, but it, I completely identified with that young girl mm. in, that, in that novel. And it was both uh, her sense of yearning of wanting something else in life, but also the joy she took escaping from the heat mm. and lying in bed and feeling the sun on her arms. And those are those are not unimportant things for us as writers to convey. Do you know, no, they're not. And, you know, the thing that, that got me with this book is you're right, there's been noise and shouting and screaming for a few years now. And, you know, I mean, maybe we can put a pin in it and say it's, you know, when Trump got elected and then it's been a downward spiral, I think, globally from there. And then we had COVID. I mean, who knew, right? Yeah. And the stress of that. I'm a person that is so always level and so always balanced, but it was starting to consume me. And you're right. If I didn't take the time out every day to walk my dog and sit under a tree and really just look at the beauty around me in that moment, I don't know if I would have survived. It got really stressful. I look good. And really, uh, there is a, you know, one of the things that it's almost like a recurring motif, and I did this quite purposefully in the novel, is the writer uh, resisting the, the seduction of the phone. Mm. You know, so he's gone away mm. to this place on the south coast of New South Wales. He's hired a place for two weeks to try and work out what book he's going to write, and he puts the phone in another room. He tries not to look at it because that seduction, I mean, it's, you know, we're doing it in this, you know, we're doing it now over Zoom and it it can't replace my being there next to you and talking and just the, the those little moments of, you know, maybe you reaching over and t- touching my hand or vice versa. That is what makes life truly joyous. Yes, I think the Trump moment is there's something about 2016 that was pivotal. But there's also something, and I'm not, I'm seriously sure I'm not some kind of Luddite going, let's go back to before the, the, the digital age. We can't do that. And there's something wonderful about the fact that in the middle of this pandemic, I can call my cousins in Greece on WhatsApp and, and, and actually have some human communication. But I found myself that I was getting distressed. I was getting angry. I was getting resentful every time I went through the feed. And I'm not even someone on social media. It was, it was just that that constant. And it's like it is an addiction, that perpetual scrolling through the phone or the screen. And it felt for me I that space, and this when I talk about this space, it's not only as a writer I'm talking about but also as a reader, to actually really find that pleasure in reading, 
that, to find that pleasure in writing. And it's the same with listening to music. You need to find, to create the solitude. Clear your head. Exactly. Clear your head. Exactly. Yeah. And that, that's what I wanted to do with, with, with this novel is talk about, you know, the, the, the writer decides, is he going to write a memoir about his mm. childhood? And that part, I knew really early on that, that, that I wanted to do a book that also celebrated, and it is, I think, a celebration of how fortunate I was as a young kid to grow up in a migrant community. That, that taught me so much. Um, uh, I, I want to just let me interrupt there yeah, because yeah. at what point did you think that that was fortunate? I think about that a lot because, you know, we've got similar backgrounds. I'm Lebanese, Australian. And there was a time where I was embarrassed and oh, I'm being yeah. brutally honest here, right? I was in, yeah. I, I wanted to be called Belinda and I wanted to have blonde hair, right? I really, really was so aware of my difference. I was so aware that the school lunch, that I, the falafel rolls that I was taking to school were different. I was so aware of the cardigans, the knitted cardigans. I so wanted a knit, a, a machine knitted cardigan so badly. I can't tell you. I never got one of those, right? Because my mother. <laughs> great joy in knitting us cardigans you know and they were like they had the cable and they had this and that every year I'd be so embarrassed about that but then there was a moment and I think it was in high school and I'm curious to know your moment where I just thought what am I doing this point of difference gives me an edge I felt it makes my life more interesting it gives my life a texture it gives my life a history and I started really appreciating it and owning it and running with it, if you like. There came, I think for me, Cheryl, because uh, I, I, I recognise all that and it, uh, the part of it is in the book, you know, getting on the bus and being, mm. you know, being taunted for being a wog and, mm-hmm. you know, I just wanted to hide from my body, you know, getting hairier before the other boys in, in mm. the gym class mm-hmm. and all that and, you know, yeah, the food stuff and you smell mm-hmm. just the, the petty cruelty of that stuff, but I think for me it was the first time I went to Greece as an adult Mm. and I saw where my parents came from and it was an enormous realisation of the journey they had made, a journey that is both physical, geographical, uh, material, but also existential, you know, and and emotional, the uh, going to to both their villages, particularly my father who was one of uh, 11 surviving children and the house, well, it wasn't a, it was a hut he grew up in, in the, in the mountains, in, in central Balkan Greece. And he had two years of primary school before he had to go and work, you know, as a, as a child. It's almost, inc- so it's inconceivable. And, and I think I realised something about struggle there, about fortitude, uh, about being grateful, because here I was, you know, a, a uni student, <laughs> going back with all these opportunities mum and dad never, ever had. And I felt proud of that heritage there really clearly. I think Mm. I just realised that that there is something in that that I am deeply grateful for. And I think why it gets weaved into the book is, you know, when we are talking before about the shouting, it's not like, again, it's not like I don't care about these things at all, but I can't pretend that anything in my experience equals equals that struggle, right, mm. that my parents and their peers and their fa- family had. I think it seemed to me a, 
acknowledging that was a really important part of growing up. <laughs> You know, the, now that doesn't, you know, there were difficult, as you you know, there were the, the difficulties and the difficulties young people still experience because of uh, their ethnicity or their race or um, their sexuality, that's still ongoing. But I'm also, I'm, I'm clear for myself, and that's why, the you know, it's 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 there in the, in the book, I am fortunate. Mm. Do you know, it's only recently that this dawned on me. For a long time, because of my experience and because of the immigrant experience, I always thought every generation is about being better than the last because that's how my parents framed it for us, right? You know, they sacrificed so much to raise six children in this country. And whether I knew it or whether I didn't, I always expected that we would then do better than them because that was the point, really, why they immigrated. And then I look around me, you know, and this is only recently, I've started to notice that that's not true for everyone and particularly people that are not immigrants. It really is part of the immigrant story, right? Most people, like I've looked at some of my adult friends, I think "Mm, you can do better than your parents. And then I've realised that that's actually my story because that's why they came. I think there is something about that immigrant experience and and the generation you know, right from my first book, uh, Cheryl, it, there, there's an um, epigram on the at, at the beginning of Loaded, mm. which was you know my first novel. Oh, I know that. <laughs> I read that in manuscript. <laughs> a wonderful, wonderful uh, Mexican American writer, Richard Rodriguez, who talks about the, um, the the responsibility of being a migrant's child, and you know sometimes that responsibility weighs heavily on us. Of course, it does, uh, mm. but it's also a gift, I think. And I may have talked to you about to you about this before. It's I think there is nothing surprising in the fact that some of my awakening to literature came from reading. Actually, it was reading people like Norman Mailer. It was reading people like uh, Philip Roth. It was uh, Dermot Schwartz that I didn't even think about it consciously as a teenager as I picked up these books and responded to sub to, to whatever was in there. But, of course, they were the first generation of Jewish immigrants mm. to the United States. It was like I, I was looking in this strange mirror that wasn't quite an immediate reflection, but it was a glimpse of something that was familiar, you know, and a, a, but str- a strange refraction, if you like, and, and that... Going through that mirror, what was really important about it was, and I think this is still what great art can do, right? It can both speak to you about an experience that you know in your body. You know, you you, you go, yes, I understand that. And then it can also put you on the other side of the mirror in a body, in the steps of someone who is totally unlike yourself. And I think that I'm striving to keep that hope for the novel alive, mm. you know. And I think, you know, that's that's a big conversation that so many writers are having at the moment. Who do we write for? Who do we speak for? How mm. can we write? I mean, that's why the, the, the new novel takes the form it does. But that hope, I mean, it is a hope, is, is for me... What what makes me pick up a book? What makes me want to go and see a film? What makes me want to listen to new music? Is that I will be, I will feel, I will experience that 
that uh, strange magic that is on being on both sides of the mirror. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Speaking of magic, I just want to go back and go out through your writing history, if you like. Another thing that dawned on me recently, and I think it's because I'm a slow learner, I don't know, but reading now sometimes if I read fiction, you know, E. McEwan, you know, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, whatever, I think about the early works and then I think about the recent works and reading Christos Chalkos and reading Petty Carrion, and I look at how the author is aged through story. Yeah. Right? And that to me is magic. I, I'm... I'm enjoying that more than I thought I would, you know, that you're writing to where you are at in your life. And I go back to Loaded and I go back to when I first read that book because I think we're similar ages and it was so stunningly powerful for me. I read it, Jane sent it to me. I read it. I was a bookseller at the time. I read it in manuscript and it was the first time that I had seen someone like me in modern Australian fiction. You know, I was so crazily moved. About Thank you for that. Yeah, it was really, I'd, uh, I was stunned. You know, I remember putting it down, just being so shocked and so, so happy that I could identify with it as well, even though the character and I were com- living completely different lives. But it's the story of youth, right? Yes. Talk to me about the body of work from there, because it is about you growing up, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you don't think about so you know when when I'm writing loaded back 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 in the day, mm. you know, Cheryl. Mm. Uh, I don't even know if I could write a novel. It was just this passion that I had in me, a, a desire that was burning. I mean, it actually mm. felt like a burning. Mm. It I'm read writing, like a burning. And yes, it's a young person's yes. book, yeah. right? It's raw. It's, yeah. And I, did, I I kind of put everything in it. Uh, as much as I could at the time because I didn't know if it was ever going to happen again. Mm. And then you keep working and you still, you keep putting more of yourself in it, in the work you do. And in the work you do, you are getting older. You Mm. are. The the other thing you do, I think, if you're serious about writing is you start, you know, it's not like I didn't think about craft and I didn't think about those questions when I was in my mid-20s, but they again. They were academic, you know. I, I, I knew I knew certain things intuitively by the experience of being a reader, and that's why I've always said, you know, okay, do a creative writing course, but there should be a creative reading course first. Mm-hmm. That we should, you know, you absolutely should, yeah. right. That's that's. Mm-hmm. Uh, but after loaded, I started to really think, okay, how do I tell stories, and what are the stories I want to tell, and how do I tell stories better? So there's that that work. But I think is part of the maturing of a of a writer is that is that is that thinking and so and and, and it's it, it often feels like because that self doubt never goes away the self doubt at the time of loaded was can I do this have I got it the um and then it becomes can I do this again and then it becomes 
can I do it better? And, but you you do learn. You do learn your craft. It's the, as I kept, you know, I've bored you with this before, it's the apprenticeship that never ends. What you don't realise, I think, or what I didn't realise until maybe maybe a few years ago is, oh, of course there's a, because you are putting aspects of yourself into every book, no matter, even if it seems like so removed from your life. So my last novel, Damascus, which is about the early, you know, the early church. I mean, even before it, it's a church, like we're talking 2,000 years ago. So, you know, there's me in there. Oh, for <laughs> sure, for the sure. The struggle with faith and doubt, that's, that, that's there. In a way, you don't realise that you are exposing yourself to the world too, to your readers. I guess with Seven and a Half, it was a way of, of thinking about that and saying, look, I have got a, I have come to a particular point in my in my my life. I'm a man, uh, you know, it was, what was I, fifty five? Yes, it was when I started writing um, Seven and a Half. I'm getting my year. Yes, I've just turned 56. So, uh, of course, I'm not the young man who wrote Loaded all those years ago. I'm not Ari. But I wanted to say that even on a novel that is ostensibly looks like autobiography or reads like autobiography, actually I'm doing the work of a fiction writer. This book is all about fiction. I'm just trying to usually we're reading fiction going how much of this is about uh how much of this is autobiography? I'm doing the reverse here and going, I'm writing in the autobiographical form, but really I'm asking you to think about how much is fiction in what we do. One of the loveliest comments I got about the book is from uh, a wonderful man, Roland, who, who runs a queer bookshop down here in Melbourne, Hairs and Hyenas, which is a fantastic store, and he's a, he's a, a door Roland, and he said to me, oh, I felt like I was reading Ari, the, the main character in, in, in Loaded, um, as an older man, and I was just really happy that he survived. <laughs> and I had not, it's Cheryl, I had not sat down at any point in the writing and redrafting of, of, of the book thinking about Ari in that sense. But I, as soon as he said it, I think that's right. It's a that book. is a spot on, actually. I'd never yeah. thought that, but that is true. That it is, is that the autobiography that is in in Loaded is there in Seven and a Half, and, and it is the it is in a way the older. Man. If I go through the chronological path of your books, as a reader, I'm the same. I'm getting, you know, I remember when I read The Slap and all my friends were having children at the time and, you know, I could see myself in a, at a barbecue exactly like that. And then when I read Barracuda to talk about desire and competition and difference and, you know, you could see that. But even in Damascus, for me, it was on reflection. Like here I am, I'm, you know, I'm 50. What have I done with my life? What is life all about? The reader moves along if you're reading yeah. the same author, don't don't you think? Oh, uh, yeah. It's interesting that, um, uh, yes, you do. I'm just thinking I'm, I'm just picked up the new Elizabeth Strout, which I oh, love yeah. the writing, yeah. you Beautiful. know, and, and, you know, it is with um, Lucy Barton, you're getting a sense of actually that history. It's mm. like you know someone, you know, mm. this character act, act, has a trajectory and you know that it's part of the writer's age. Mm. It's part of her work, her contemplation, her memory that you're enjoying. There's another, you know, one of the, in all that was wearying and tough about lockdown, the simple pleasure of actually also going back to 
writing that meant something to me when I was really young and I haven't looked at it in a long time. At the moment, I'm, I'm rereading all of Dostoevsky. Mm. Uh, and, you know, he was... It was pivotal for me, um, mm. and I've got a high school teacher to thank for introducing mm. me to the to the to that literature. So thank you, Mr. Javier. I was, I was fortunate. <laughs> oh, he's he's, he passed away <laughs> some time ago. And oh, was, okay. <laughs> but I, 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 it was one of the most. Uh, I was really glad that I was able to actually tell him um, after I got published uh, how what an inspiration he he had been to me. I mm. think you know, uh, yeah. and that's. You know, it is one of the reasons why I am committed to public schooling and that how having just one adult like that in your life can it's crucial. Yeah, it can inspire you and it yeah, and it can make you think, oh maybe I can do this. Mm. Because we didn't grow up, you and I didn't grow up in a world where we were told we could do this, right? Yeah. Anyway, reading reading Gostowski, and I'm doing it chronologically now. It's so wonderful to go back to a writer you who was so important and also think of their trajectory, right, that you hadn't thought about when you first encountered them because you were reading, you know, the first one I read was Crime and Punishment. That was the book um, Mr Hervier steered me to. But um, I, I recently reread Notes from Underground, which I remember tr- struggling with at 17 and putting down because it didn't make sense or I couldn't quite, I, it just bored me, you know. Um, and, oh, God, I was stunned by how much I found in it and um, uh, the kind of that angst that I thought was just our generation, our politics of the moment, that it was happening 150 years ago. Mm. In, in, and that was, yeah, that was inspiring in a different way. And it, great books, our friends in that way, not in some kind of sentimental way. I don't mean that sentimentally. Sorry for interrupting, Cheryl. Just it, it, they are, they have everything that is complex and nuanced and difficult and maddening and beautiful about being human. <laughs> if, if no, going. no, I, I was just going to add it's a life journey. And I feel as though reading you has been part of my life journey. It's it's not just about what I read. It's about what you've done for me, you know, in my life. Oh, that's a very generous comment, Cheryl. Mm. I, it's true, uh, though. Thank you. Uh, well, uh, you know, so keep me keep me honest, you know, because I'm touching wood because, you know, I want to do this for a lot longer. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I need to be reading you for a long time. Well, it's also the, you know, when we were talking really early on about, and, you know, because there is reflections on on family in the book and how do you tell stories, that's what mm. it's about. And, and fortunately, I'll use that word again, you know, there's a character in the book who didn't have the sucker of the kind of family I had. You know, he's trying to create it without that history, and that's that's really hard to do. I'm actually just getting sad thinking about it. Mm. But that that notion of fortune, I wanted to weave into the book because what I can do as a writer, and oh my god, my friend, this is so. This is what I mean. It would feel like poison on my tongue to pretend that my struggle is is equal to mum and dad's, right, mm. is I play. Mm. I have this great fortune in what I do. I play. That doesn't mean there aren't days where I tear my hair out and wonder if I'm any good at what I'm doing. That that mm. doesn't go away. But my, my, my work is play. Mm. And that is anyone who's listening to this who's a writer or an artist of any kind, and I know it can be, it feels like the Sisyphus at times just to get the bloody book out or the bloody record mm. out or the bloody film out. 
you know, we're lucky we can play. Mm-hmm. And we're, you know, and that's that's a joy that that I know as a reader too. You know, when you disappear in a good book, you you're in you're in the garden. Mm-hmm. You're playing in the garden, and that's mm-hmm. that's a delight. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, and I'm sure for a lot of people that are listening, the last two years, I mean, I've found solace in reading. Sometimes I haven't been able to read fiction. I've been so distressed about what's happening in the world that I've taken to short stories, you know. Aren't they great? Yeah. It, for me, it's just like a, a tiny gift, you know, it, it, you know, if you don't have a lot of time and you just need to escape. Uh, they're wonderful. But I've taken great solace in reading and it's it's art and it's so important in a time in it always but in these times so important sure i was going to so say relevant that, yeah i've i've really i mean I, i've been doing this for a while but during the pandemic it became mm-hmm. it became like a, a, a lifesaver I've, mm-hmm. I've got always got a collection of short stories by the bed and a collection of poetry or a poem mm-hmm. you know, because sometimes it is it can be tough you know and I, I think I learned this through writing Damascus that it's I don't have that faith, you know. I'm 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 a, I'm an agnostic. That's what that's yeah. really who what I am. Uh, but sometime I was just you know I had a book uh, all through last year. Uh, I had William Blake's uh, collected works by the bed, and reading him, I just uh, at times it was like prayer. Mm. Uh, yeah, it saved me. Mm. Mm. I agree. You're wonderful. I love you. You're wonderful too. <laughs> this is a... You're more wonderful. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not going to accept that. No way am I going to accept that. It's. Uh, I, I cannot wait till the um the, the time when we're together physically, uh, so I can give you the the big hug that I want to give you. I can't wait either. Thank you, Christos Charkos. Always a pleasure. Ditto, my friend. Ditto. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.